in Ireland, uh, I have had over the years, until recently, a very good friend by the name of Corey. Corey was a pilot. Well, he is a pilot, but he had to return to the States. Uh, now lives in Oregon with his wife and family. Corey was my best friend and uh, probably will be one of my best friends for life. A very funny guy, and he came over uh, to work for a company called CityJet, which was a subsidiary of Air France. Uh, and another guy named Don also came over, and Corey and Don uh, uh, was, were relocated to Scaries, which is the town that we were living in and church planting in. And uh, they, being Christians, being very solid Christians, in fact, they ended up helping us with uh, our church plant and Scaries. Great guys. One day, uh, Corey was telling me the story. And he says that uh, he was flying a uh, typical route, Dublin to London. And uh, a few years ago, the United Kingdom, especially England, had this very severe blizzard. And London was hit really, really hard. And so uh, as Corey was flying in, they were rerouting planes to outlying airports until they could get the mess cleared, they could get the runways cleared. So he ends up in a, uh, a nearby airport, sitting there on the, uh, in the parking area for, with his plane and his passengers, waiting to get clearance to finally land in London, when he hears over the, the, uh, the radio that Don is coming in as well. Don is also being rerouted to the same airport uh, due to the weather in London. So when Don lands and parks his plane, Corey gets on the radio and says, Don, what's up? And Don says, Corey, what's up? And they do this back and forth a few times until the uh, traffic control guy in the tower says, this is an emergency channel. Who is this? Get off the channel. And uh, they almost got in, in big trouble, but they had a lot of fun. Uh, and in case you're wondering where that comes from, uh, here's, here's an audio clip. You pick up the phone. Hello? What's that? What's that? Yeah. Yo, where's Dookie? Yo, Dookie. Yo. What's that? What's that? Hold on. Hello? So what's up, B? Okay, some of you remember that from the Super Bowl. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Oh, okay, only a few of you. Good thing I played the, radio, the, the clip then. Well, he, that's the question that I want to ask. What's up with America? I mean, I've come back from Ireland, and maybe it's because I haven't been living here for a while, but I notice that there are some differences. I notice changes. I'm probably more pronounced to me than it is to you. But when we've come back, this time especially, we're asking ourselves, what's up with America? What's going on? And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that uh, America is getting worse. If you're concerned about your country, our country, as I am, then, then you've noticed, you've noticed uh, this week we're going to celebrate Independence Day. On Friday, 
July 4th. And I'm sure some of you will be having cookouts. Uh, you'll be having friends and family over. You'll be getting out your American flags. Uh, there'll be fireworks. It'll be fun, and it should be fun. But the real question is, how is the American exper- experiment really doing 238 years later? Where is America? Well, for starters, number one, economically, we're a mess. And it doesn't take an economist to tell us that. But just in case you recently woke up from being comatose, let me inform you that the U.S. GDP stands now at $16.2 trillion, but the gross national debt exceeds that at $17.5 trillion. We're in trouble. Politically, we're a mess. Take Congress, for example. One political analyst I read stated, the collapse of Congress's committee system, the frantic pace of media coverage, the increasing complexity of legislation, the rise of massive catch-all continuing resolutions, the time spent on raising campaign cash, ah, for all of those reasons and others, a shocking number of lawmakers don't even know anymore what they're debating, denouncing, or even voting on. That can't be good. Culturally, we are a mess. Columnist Byron Williams writes, From Columbine to Virginia Tech to Sandy Hook and to the present, we are temporarily shocked by the sensational aspects of senseless shootings, only to return to business as usual. And there is no doubt that we are a violent nation. All you have to do is go through a local a video game store or a cinema to see that we love violence. Spiritually, we're a mess. Last year, the Center for Disease Control released a report revealing that there were 19.7 million new venereal infections in the United States in 2008, bringing the total number of sexually transmitted infections in the U.S. to over 110 million. According to the CDC, 50% of the new infections in 2008 incurred, uh, occurred among people in the 15 to 24 age bracket. If you do your math, that means that one in three Americans have a sexually transmitted disease. One in three. How about homosexuality? It appears to me that our culture has pretty much accepted homosexuality Uh, You can hardly watch the news without hearing about same-sex marriage at some point. In general, our immorality is reaching epic Canaanite proportions. I have a newspaper here from Ireland. The last time I was there, uh, I I received this. uh, And the very front page of the newspaper says, Sugar Daddies Fund College... For 4,500 girls. I'm going to read some of this to you. Nearly 4,500 hard-up Irish students have signed up to a sugar daddy dating service to pay their way through college. Some 4,464 female undergraduates across Ireland have joined SeekingArrangement.com, a U.S.-based online dating website which pairs off attractive young women with wealthy and usually much older international businessmen. The agency says its latest figures show a sharp increase in the number of so-called college sugar babies in Ireland over the past year. Although critics have penned the website 
as a seedy playground for aging adulterers. Spokeswoman Angela Jacob insisted they are creating relationships which are mutually beneficial. You know, I think we call that prostitution. A survey conducted last year by the website found about 80% of all relationships conducted through the service involve sex. However, company chief executive officer Brandon Wade describes his clients as intelligent and goal-oriented ladies, while sugar daddies are respectful gentlemen. He recently wrote on his website, Because the relationship between a sugar daddy and a sugar baby is romantic in nature, most sugar relationships will likely involve sex. And because a sugar daddy is expected to be the generous gentleman, money will always be spent on the sugar baby. I don't see anything wrong with that. When I read that, I was shocked. And I didn't even notice until I reread it later that it was a U.S.-based company. Now, I sort of expect this sort of post-Christian pagan behavior in Ireland, but to find out that this was being exported from the United States was very concerning. I went to the website and followed up some of the news articles and discovered that according to one of the reports, there are over 2.5 million sugar babies in the United States, of which over 1 million are college students. So our college students, in order to pay for their college education, are committing prostitution. How did America get so far away from God? Well, perhaps we can get a clue with our text this morning, looking at the life of Samson. So what's up with Samson? Well, in order to find out what's going on with Samson, we need to look at the context of this passage. The context is the book of Judges. And when we study the book of Judges, we find out that these are really troubling times in the history of and life of Israel. These are the dark ages in Israel's history. And we observe as we look at the book of Judges, we find this thing we call the Judges cycle. This is a vicious cycle, uh, and slide please, that will occur throughout the book from narrative to narrative. What we find is, we find that Israel is, has peace in the land. They're very, very comfortable. Uh, they're enjoying life. And eventually, they start worshiping the Canaanite gods instead of our true and living God. And so they turn away from the Lord and they do evil. And so God has to punish them. And usually that means bringing in a captor, bringing in an enemy who will subdue them. And now they're slaves and now they cry out. And so God raises a judge. And that judge will deliver Israel. And then they'll have peace again in the land for a period of time until they get comfortable. And then they get lazy. And then they start worshiping other gods. And then they do evil. And then God punishes them. And then they cry out. And then God raises a judge. And then they're delivered. And then they serve the Lord until they get lazy again. And the cycle goes on and on and on. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Let me read from Judges chapter 3. Just to illustrate this, this is the very first judge. His name is Othniel. Starting in verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, 
and he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. His name was Othniel. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. So the land had rest 40 years, and then Othniel died. That's the best passage in Judges for demonstrating the Judges cycle. And what happens after Othniel dies? We get this very interesting Benjamite guy named Ehud. The verses continue in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in sight of the Lord. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. And Ehud goes and he ends up rescuing in a very gruesome way uh, the people of Israel from, from the Moabites. And then when Ehud dies, we read in Judges chapter 4, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the cycle goes on and on, and the Lord raises up Deborah and Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and then finally Samson. We get to Judges chapter 13, we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now this is what's troubling. When we get to Samson, this cycle breaks. And it breaks at a very, very sad point. They, serve, they start serving the Baal and the Ashtoreth and the Canaanite gods. And so God punishes, his, his, punishes Israel. He has the Philistines enslave them and rule over them. And that's where it breaks. This time, Israel does not cry out to the Lord. They don't cry out to the Lord. They don't say, Lord, rescue us. We, we're, we're being subdued by the Philistines. There's no comment that they're unhappy with the situation. There's no crying out, seeking the Lord. Well, maybe they actually like the Philistines now. Maybe they're happy with what's going on around them. So they don't cry out. In fact, the first time we hear anything from God's people and the Samson narrative doesn't occur until chapter 15. And what happened in chapter 15 is Samson had gone out and he had killed some of the Philistines. And so what do they do? Well, they retaliate and they raid a Judean town called Lehi. Listen to this. And when the men of Judah find out, found out this happened because of Samson, they go find Samson and they say, Samson. At last, we're behind you. Let's beat these Philistines. Let's run them back to the sea. Take our land back. No, actually, that's not at all what they said. They actually said, Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done? I'm sorry, but we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. 
I'm sure Samson was thinking, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. You can bind me. But what's concerning is that at least in the past, they would have supported the judge that God had raised. Now they're upset at the judge because he is interfering with the status quo. I think the author of Judges has done a great job of describing this time in history. He says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is how God's people are described at the end of this book. Everyone did what was right in his own side, in his own eyes. So Samson, when we look at Samson and we see really a failed leader, we see someone who has really done some bad things, seems to have messed up everything, we should realize he's really just acting like everyone else. Just doing what was right in his own eyes. But the, but the problem is, is that Samson was dedicated from birth to be a Nazarite. He was dedicated from birth to be a leader, to lead Israel. And he's doing anything but leading Israel. In fact, in our text this morning, what we discover is he is he's a prisoner in the camp of the enemy. So we ask the question, what's up with Samson? What's up with Samson? Well, number one, let me suggest to you that Samson had a superficial relationship with God. He had a superficial relationship with God. If you look back to chapter 16, verse 20, we read this. And Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Wow! How could Samson not be aware that the Lord had left him? How's that possible? Well, I think the answer's obvious. He didn't have much of a relationship with him in the first place. Samson was supposed to be a leader, supposed to be filled with the Spirit, but he didn't live that way. And when the Lord left him, he didn't even know it. He didn't know it, and he didn't actually achieve his greatness until first... He was laid low. His eyes were gouged out. He's working at grinding a mill. He had reached rock rock bottom. It's not until then that he really does something for the Lord. I mean, what a shame it is, really, when God's people ignore, waste, or abuse the gifts God has given them. Samson could could have been an amazing leader at this time in Israel, specifically at a time when they needed good leadership. But instead, he was mostly a failure. He's the quintessential example of what could have been. I want to ask you an an uncomfortable question. Are you this morning a could-be? Has God given you an amazing talent an amazing gift that you can use for His kingdom and for His glory, but instead, you're not using it at all. And I think it's likely that there's a little Samson in all of us. C.S. Lewis, in his essay entitled The Weight of Glory, wrote, 
We are all half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Well said, C.S. Lewis. Let's learn a lesson from Samson. Let's not settle with being could-be's. What else do we learn from Samson? Samson's failure caused others to sin. Judges 16.23 Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. Wow. Instead of bringing glory to God, Samson gave the enemy the opportunity to glorify their God. And God hates that. God hates that with a passion. He's a jealous God. He does not like it when people worship other gods before him. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, was that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And Samson failed to do that. And as a result, the Philistines sang praises to their God when it should have been the Israelites singing praises to Yahweh. Next, Samson is mocked, and God's name is tarnished. Judges chapter 16, verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. And now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Have you noticed that when God's people fail, the world loves it? Oh, the world loves when God's name is dragged through the mud. Think of these names. Jim Baker, Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swagger. These were Christian leaders Television evangelists and personalities. And like Samson, they fell into sin. And boy, did the media have a heyday. There will always be people like Samson. And some will, some will repent. And some will be restored. But always, God's reputation is at stake. His honor but fortunately for us, the story's not over. Samson is humbled and praised, and God's name is restored. And the wonderful thing about God is that he truly does forgive. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, 
let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zor and Eshtael in the tomb of Noah's father. And he had judged Israel for 20 years. Samson's prayer is answered. But let's, let's make no mistake. This is certainly not the Lord's prayer. There's no hallowing or hallowing of God's name. There's no seeking of God's will. There's no remorse that Samson had failed to lead God's people into kingdom living. But fortunately, this is not a story about Samson. The Bible is theocentric. It's God-centered. And this story, like all the rest of them, is, is ultimately a story about God. And God is going to get what God wants at the end. It is unfortunate for Samson how it turned out for him. But God is always going to get what God wants. Paul tells us in Galatians 6-7 that God is not to be mocked. He won't be mocked. His plan at the very beginning of the Samson narrative was to judge the Philistines. If you go to the very beginning, you'll see it right there. And he's going to do that one way or the other. So at the end of the day, he judges them because he's the real judge, not Samson. And he gives Samson his strength back at the opportune moment to destroy the enemy. Now, I wish we had uh, a lot of time to explore some of the interesting parallels between Samson and our Lord Jesus. But I'm just going to share one with you. But it would be an interesting study. Both Samson and Jesus died with their arms outstretched. Samson between two pillars and Jesus on the cross. Samson died with his arms outstretched because he failed. He fell into sin and was captured. Jesus, on the other hand, went voluntarily to the cross for you and for me. And Jesus did more than defeat Dagon. Jesus defeated death itself. Whether it's the Old Testament, it's the New Testament, or it's an episode in your life, know this, God always wins. He always wins. Now with that, I want to look at some application. I'm going to start big and then I'm going to get small. It's not the economists, the politicians... Or the sociologists that will save America. Only God can save America. What America needs is a revival. It needs another great awakening. God hates sin. He is not happy. He cannot be happy when He looks at what is going on in our country. But the Bible also tells us that He is full of grace and mercy. And He desires that none should perish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
Just look at the book of Jonah. Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, was one of the most evil cities in all of human history. And yet, even Nineveh, when they repented, found God's mercy. And if you'll permit me to paraphrase a little from Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. I'll read. And should not I pity America, that great nation in which there are more than 100 million persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God is slow to dish out judgment because He desires that none should perish. So what that means is that there is still hope for our country. But it isn't going to be the politicians that save this country. Now it's the time for us to remember God's promise in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God wants to do revival in this country. God wants to restore this country. But we have a part in that. And His great plan and His great will, He includes us in this. And it's the time is now for us to do something about it. Second point. The canonization of America is the consequence of the canonization of the church and the family. I am totally convinced of this. The very fact that churches in this country are arguing about homosexuality is proof that the church in America is struggling with canonization. Would you agree? The influence of the world is winning over the influence of the church, which is exactly what happened in the days of the judges. The Canaanite Canaanite culture won over the Israelites. It didn't take long for me to come back from Ireland. In fact, we were only here probably less than a couple weeks when I discovered that the, the new cliche, the new phrase that everybody was saying, at least new to me, was living the dream. Yeah. I'm living the dream. I go get my car washed. I pull up to the car wash, roll down my window, you know, pull out my money. Guy comes up. I say, hey, what's up? Living the dream, man. Living the dream. My first thought was how sad that was. Your dream was to wash a car. Uh, But then I realized that he didn't really mean it. Just, you know, everyone's talking about living the dream. I even heard it in church, you know. The last church, the last time we visited one of our churches, this this is unusual, but you know, I walked up to a guy and I said, uh, you know, gave him a big hug. And I said, hey, I'll see you in, a, in probably a year. Okay. And then he just said, living the dream. 
It didn't even fit the context. It was, it was just weird. But let me ask you, when someone says live in the dream, what exactly do they mean? What, what, is it the American dream? Is that what we mean when we say live in the dream? We're living the American dream? When I was a kid, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, the American dream could be summed up with uh, a good job, a house, a two-car garage, and a pool. American dream. Really? Is that what we're teaching our kids? That materialism is the American dream, is our dream? If that's the case, then I'm not convinced that our dream is God's dream. So I have a challenge. A challenge first for the dads. So if you're a dad this morning, please listen carefully. There is no time like the present to sit down together with your wife and ask yourselves some very serious questions. What is our dream? What is the dream for our children? What is the dream for our family? Does our dream match God's dream? It's time to break the cycle. Because if we don't, the, the church is heading for, for disaster. Now I have a challenge to you as the church, to all of us. How would you describe your relationship with God? Is, is it growing? Is it on fire? Or is it more like Samson's and can best be described as superficial? If we're going to have a dynamic and intimate relationship with our Lord Jesus, we need to spend time with Him. Relationships require time. So are we doing that? Are we spending time with the Lord? Reading the Word? Spending time in Scripture? Are we praying? Spending quality time with the Lord? Are we seeking Him? Are we memorizing Scripture, having our hearts and minds as an arsenal of truth? What about fasting? Meditating, all of these things we call spiritual disciplines. Are you practicing spiritual disciplines in your life? If the Apostle Paul were here today, he would say this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Would he say that about us? Finally, last point, do not be defeated by your failure Because God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am absolutely convinced that Satan's, one of Satan's strategies for crippling the work of the church is to influence you and me to just give up. To be defeated by our failures. Hey, we're going to fail. Is there anyone here who has never failed? Good, because the minute you raise your hand, I would have said you just did. So, good thing you didn't. I want to share a story that I found recently uh, regards the British Navy. Uh, It goes like this. A number of years ago, the British Navy was involved in some peacetime maneuvers at sea involving a column of cruisers. They were steaming along in formation when a signal was given to execute a 90-degree turn. The The maneuver went off flawlessly, except for one cruiser whose captain missed the signal. The ship almost collided with the one in front, and when it swerved to avoid a collision, the whole convoy was thrown into confusion. Only some very skillful seamanship by the other captains prevented a serious accident. When some order had been regained, the admiral sent a message to the captain who had caused all the trouble, and he said, "'Captain, what are your intentions?' Immediately the captain replied, Sir, I intend to buy a farm. (laughs) He knew without being told that that failure had cost him his naval career. Is the Christian life like serving in the British Navy? Is is it one failure and you're out? No. Thank goodness, because if it was, I think most of us here would be in big trouble. But some would also have us believe that we can live as we please without concern for any consequence. Of course, that, that is not true either. But God's grace, God's mercy is greater than our failures. So do not be defeated by your failure. We read earlier that when Samson was captured, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Well, that is something that you and I never have to worry about. If you're here this morning, and if you've put your faith and your trust and your life in Christ, then the Bible tells you and tells me that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. He will never leave us. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You don't have to worry about losing the Holy Spirit. That means that when we fail, we can fall back on the promise that God is merciful, God is graceful, 
gracious. And He can restore you. As I conclude, I want to share with you about a professor from England by the name of Andrew Walls. Now, he is uh, actually Scottish in background, uh, and he studied both missiology and church history. A very interesting guy, and he's done some great research. I'm going to share with you a few paragraphs of an interview that he had with Christianity Today. Andrew Walls, he writes, If you consider the expansion of Islam or Buddhism, the pattern is one of steady exp- uh, expansion. And in general, the lands that have been Islamic have stayed Islamic, and the lands that have been Buddhist have stayed Buddhist. Christian history is quite different. The original center, Jerusalem, is no longer a center of Christianity, not the kind of center that Mecca is, for example. And if you consider other places that at different times have been centers of Christianity, such as North Africa and Egypt, Asia Minor, Great Britain, it's evident that these are no longer centers of the faith. My own country, Scotland, is full of churches that have been turned into garages or nightclubs. And that's true in Ireland too. One of the most famous churches in the country, in the very center of Dublin, the church that the Guinness family had raised their children and, and, and were married in and were baptized in. The Anglican church in the middle of Dublin is now a pub. Walls continues, what happened in each case was decay in the heartland that appeared to be at the center of the faith. At the same time, through the missionary effort, Christianity moved to or beyond the periphery and established a new center. When the Jerusalem church was scattered to the winds, Hellenistic Christianity arose as a result of the mission to the Gentiles. And when Hellenistic society collapsed, the faith was seized by the barbarians of northern and western Europe, so that by the time Christianity was receding in Europe, the churches of Africa, Asia, and Latin America were coming into their own. Now, Walls stops there, but I will continue. And I will add that we know from history that the result of such extraordinary people as the Wesleys, the Whitfields, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, among many others, that the missionary movement spread to America and eventually America became the center of Christianity. Professor Wall's insights into the geographical movement of the center of Christianity is enlightening, but it's also concerning. Because when the center moves from one place to another, it creates a vacuum. When Jerusalem ceased to be the center of the Christian faith and it moved to Asia Minor, it created a vacuum. The same with others, and history tells us the rest. Jerusalem, Egypt, North Africa, Asia Minor, all of these became Muslim. Europe filled the vacuum with Enlightenment thinking, and now it is entirely a post-Christian continent. If the center of Christianity is moving out of America, and believe me, the signs are there. If the center of Christianity is beginning to move out of America... Will it create a vacuum? And if so, what will fill it? 
Our country's in trouble. But we can do something about it. The Bible says, be humble. Seek the Lord. Pray. And there's no better time than the present. We have two minutes left. And so I would like to ask you, let's do this right now. Let's humble ourselves. Let's seek the Lord. Let's intercede for our country. If I can have just a couple of you just pray right where you're at. Just lead us into this intercessory prayer for our nation. And I will close us. Let's do that right now. Yes, Father, we do. Do thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are a patient God. And we pray for our country. This week, many people will be celebrating the July 4 festivities. And Father, as we look around and we enjoy the celebration, it is great to live in a free country. But Father, I pray that your people will humble themselves and seek you and pray. We might intercede for our country, that it might come back to you. Now, Father, to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.